0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast, I'm Toby Buckle, and welcome to the first episode of Season 3. Call it um, Divine Providence or maybe Divine Disapproval, but you'll hear that it's just started thundering outside, so there might be a tiny bit of that on this intro recording. What you're about to listen to is the first part of a multi-part series on Machiavelli, who is absolutely one of my favourite authors in the canon, someone I've written and thought a fair amount about. And I'm going to take a really deep dive on this. So this part is sort of the introduction where I lay out my stall. I try and explain what I hope to achieve with this series, what I hope to bring to you, why it's worth your time to listen to it. I talk a bit about the context of Machiavelli, the historical context, how he's been interpreted, and ultimately the type of Machiavelli and the type of authors who I think get him right. And I set up what I'm going to do in the next episode. At the beginning of the series, I should say a quick thank you to Matt Techman from the University of Chicago and the Elucidations podcast for helping me put together some of the research materials for this. And yeah, without any further preamble, let's just get started. I've been working on this project for a long time. It's going to be a multi-part series where we go into some real gnarly political theory depth, and yeah, I, I hope you enjoy listening to it and get something out of it. So, without any further preamble, it is my pleasure to bring you the first part of season three, the introduction to my Machiavelli series. Is it possible to be free, but not to know that you're free? It's not a trick question, it's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. And at a first approximation, I'm tempted to say, sure, I can certainly think of some specific examples where you could be free but unaware of it, just off the top of my head. I could have formed the mistaken belief that I was locked in a room and unfree to leave or unfree to do anything that would involve me leaving the room. But actually the door had been open all along and the entire time I was actually free to leave. So that would seem to be a pretty clear instance in which I could be free but mistaken about my own state of being free. But, 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 there's two things about that example that I think can be a little misleading. One is it's a very specific time-bound instance. Would it be possible to be free in general over the course of your entire life or many years? Would it be possible to be free for extended periods of time and not be aware of it? To believe yourself, in fact, to be unfree? Well, then it gets a bit more tricky, right? I mean, yes, you could imagine some sort of convoluted example that philosophers like to create where maybe you stayed in that room for years or your entire life and just, (laughs) for whatever reason, you never tried the door handle. You could construct some scenario. But in terms of a real-world scenario, it becomes harder to imagine. The other thing that that scenario assumes is it assumes that the locus of freedom is the individual. The context of which I'm talking of an individualist, quote-unquote, liberal age is shining through me, right? When when I think of, am I free? Are you free? I go immediately to you as the individual, not you as the participant within a group or a member of a community. And then the question becomes harder, right? Is it possible for an entire community of people, let's say a nation-state, is it possible for an entire country of people, an entire nation of people, to be free, but to be collectively unaware of that freedom? That sounds really, really bizarre to me, right? And yet, and this is the reason I ask it, and this is the reason I ask this question to launch this series and why I've been thinking about it, that would seem to be the state of the world according to the prevailing idea of what freedom is used by most elites, most powerful and wealthy people. That would seem to be the case. According to You know, the people who run our society, the CEOs and the politicians, at least the centrist to conservative ones. Freedom is defined in a libertarian sort of way as the absence of deliberate interpersonal constraints, and more specifically, specific ones. If you have access to a free market, if you have, like, freedom of certain types of opportunity, you're free, right? Government isn't coming in and telling you what you can buy or sell or where you can work. You're free. And yet, the reality is that most people in our society... I'm talking here for America, but I imagine this would go for a lot of um, Western nations. They don't feel free. They can buy and sell and trade. They can participate in elections even. But I suspect most people, or at least a large plurality of people living in America, don't feel free, despite, according to what powerful people tell us freedom is, us having more freedom than probably almost anyone else who ever lived. There's a similar paradox that I explored with um Peter Singer in the last episode, that in spite of material affluence, we're not happy. Now, in some ways, That paradox is easier to explain. It just might be the case psychologically and practically that material affluence actually doesn't make us happy, or it's not the only thing or the most important thing that makes us happy. The freedom question cuts a little deeper, though, because there's only two ways you can go. If we have an overall societal definition of freedom, this sort of libertarian definition of no economic interpersonal constraints on the individual and that definition does seem to be operative or at least largely operative and yet people just don't feel free then one of two things has to be true either people are mistaken in general and in their collectivity about whether or not they're free most people in our society are wrong about it In some felt experience sense. Or the definition's wrong. It seems to me like one has to be true, right? Either people are wrong to feel unfree. Which would be weird. Or just the definition is wrong. Now, that's not the only game in town. In my last big, long series that I did, which I covered on the history of libertarianism, I pointed out that this libertarian conception of freedom is very vulnerable to some, to my mind at least, very powerful and very real-world counterexamples. Can you really look someone in the eye and tell them that they're free? when they're starving or when they're dying because they they have a treatable illness that, for lack of economic funds, they're they're not able to get cured, or when their entire life chances have been stymied because of a, a lack of being able to have access to education or other social goods, can you really say that that person is free just because, in theory, They're able to choose their employer, even though in practice they're not. And in theory, they're able to buy and trade goods and start a company, even though, again, in practice they're not. So I traced out another liberal or progressive notion of freedom that includes at its heart ideas of autonomy, ideas of development. um, and, and, And in the practical level would include access to those goods that people... Are made free, and I looked at the history of this from John Stuart Mill all the way up until the Beveridge Report, the document that laid the foundations for the welfare state in the UK, that quite explicitly said in order to be free, people need to have an education, they need to have economic security, they need to have access to healthcare. Like, lack of interpersonal constraints in a market sense is part of freedom, but it's not the whole story of what enables an individual to flourish and thrive. So, okay. Even with that one, and obviously I'm much more sympathetic to that latter, more expansive read of what freedom means, there's still an uneasiness there when it meets reality, and I say that as someone who does in many ways identify with that sort of progressive liberalism, is I can well imagine someone, and I don't need to imagine I know this person, I've been this person, right, who is more or less middle class, you know, again has all the economic freedom, they can choose their job, you know, they're in a free market, but also has access, you know, has a good education, has access to healthcare, but still doesn't feel free, in some fundamental sense. And I think there's a piece here that's missing. And we feel it only in its absence, but we feel the absence of a certain dynamic animating force. And I feel its absence quite keenly in many debates that happen on the American left between so-called liberals and so-called radicals, or, you know, centrists and social democrats, where they just sort of seem to hit a brick wall between ideas of radically altering the social structure and ushering in a new utopia with a Green New Deal and a guaranteed job for everyone and all of these wonderful-sounding goals, contrasted with... um the obvious antagonism that that approach has to political participation and the general setup of how our society is structured and managed—you can you can feel its absence in the UK right now, my home country, where people are throwing polit throwing politicians at milkshakes. I'm going to leave that in throwing milkshakes at politicians for what seem like very justifiable emotional reasons, but when they do so are met with this scolding rationalism of don't you know about the liberal tradition and free speech and all of that and need a tradition of their own to draw on and find it wanting. There's something missing at the heart of all of this. And, in a perhaps totally overambitious way, that's what I'm going to attempt to bring you. And I'm going to attempt to bring you it from one of the stranger and quirkier and also funnier and more jovial and more entertaining thinkers of the Italian Renaissance, Niccolò Machiavelli, who I haven't talked about at all on this podcast yet. But is up there with Mill as absolutely one of my favourite thinkers, both as someone to read and as someone whose ideas, I think when properly understood, can be informing of how we should understand, practically and normatively, our role as citizens of the American Republic, our role as people who do not feel free, who yearn for something from our government and from our society that, that we know is real and urgent and important, but can often be difficult to name. So let us turn then, from the modern world with all of its affluence, but also all of its complexities and difficulties and strife, and take ourselves back to the days of the Italian Renaissance and the city-states of which our author lived. And I'm not going to get hung up on this problem, but as everyone who's said anything about Machiavelli notes, there are many, many, many different constructions of Machiavelli. When you look at all of the different things that people have imagined this man to be, one is greeted with a baffling plethora of characters and doctrines, from people who are literally demonic, who are the incarnation of the devil himself, people who are enemies of Christ, to people who are defenders of him, people who are resurrecting the old ways of the Roman Republic, to people who were actually early empiricists, people who are noble and idealistic freedom fighters, and people who are the lackeys of the most despicable tyrants and their literary defenders. So I won't get hung up on that. Um, One metaphor I've had in my head is imagine a vast mansion with many rooms and sprawling grounds. And throughout it all, there's many different people in many different forms. And I sort of imagine these as the many different constructions of Machiavelli (laughs) that we've had. I'm not going to get hung up on that. I'm going to give you a specific account and I'm going to tell you as clearly as I can what methodological assumptions I'm making that gives you that account. But just know that when you approach the Machiavelli scholarship um, for the first time, You are just met with this bewildering assortment. So if you're listening to this because you have a college paper on Machiavelli, my first bit of advice would be, unless this is the title of your paper, do not attempt to write a survey of all of the different Machiavellis that have been constructed. Make some basic assumptions going in, which I'm going to do in this. But just to give you a flavour of this, one paper I've been reading that um, I think gives quite a nice overview of all of the different constructions of Machiavelli is uh, Machiavelli's Republican political theory in philosophy and social criticism. I'm almost certainly going to mispronounce the name wrong, by Dragasija Um It's a Serbian name, so just apologies for that in advance. He gives this really splendid overview of um, the historical baggage that Machiavelli comes to us with. So, quote, Interpretations of the Prince from the 16th century to the 18th considered Machiavelli to be, quote, a teacher of evil, end quote, and often simply reduced his theories to this idea of Machiavellianism. Indeed, even five years after his death, the Prince was published in Rome and provoked sharp reactions from the Roman Catholic Church. It was put under the Index of Prohibited Books in 1599. The Inquisition decreed the utter destruction of all of his works, which was confirmed by the Council of Trent in 1564, and they were to remain in this prescribed status until 1890. Cardinal, Cardinal Reginald Pole was among the first to harshly rebuke Machiavelli in 1536. In his book Apologia and Carolarium versus Caesareum, Apology to the Emperor Charles V, he qualified his method as satanic. Machiavelli himself as, quote, an enemy of the humanity, and his book The Prince as the devil's bible which had been written by the devil's hand according to gauss the writer for the introduction of the prince the prohibition on machiavelli's works was understood to be a signal for numerous attacks against him therein both writers and dramatists from the 16th century and onward including shakespeare used his name in the negative sense the stigma of Machiavellianism, end quote. And that's the Machiavelli many people are familiar with. And that's not the only one. However, like I said, there's been this huge plethora, and they're not even easily divided up um, into positive and negative but going over to the negative side there's been a sustained effort by many scholars in the last couple of generations or so to reclaim Machiavelli as part of the republican tradition which is going to be the the way I read Machiavelli in this and led I I think one can't do do this without talking about Quentin Skinner who has been, I think, a big figure in in some ways bringing Machiavelli in from the cold, although certainly not the only person to have tried to do so. And Quentin Skinner reads Machiavelli as holding a particular idea, a particular conception of what freedom is, that he thinks is going to be relevant and informing to making sense of the world we live in today. So in other words, Quentin Skinner is on a very, very sort of similar project to the one I outlined at the beginning, which is we need some sort of new idea about what freedom is, because clearly our current ones seem to be inadequate in a number of ways. And Quentin Skinner comes along and says, well, maybe what we need isn't a new idea about freedom, but actually a very old idea that we need to bring back, because it makes a lot of sense, and it makes a lot of sense for making the world that we live in intuitive and intelligible. Now, I'm going to critically disagree a little bit with Quentin Skinner and come up with an account of freedom that, while recognizably Republican, is somewhat distinct from his, but we'll get to that later. Let's just begin with what Quentin Skinner is doing here and what account of freedom is he reading Machiavelli as having. And that's going to be our starting point. And one of the things I really like about Skinner is, I mean, firstly, he's just a beautiful writer and a beautiful speaker, like he's a pleasure to read. Um, But one of the, the things I really like about him is he talks a lot about method, which I won't bang on about it. It is a hobby horse of mine. But I think when we're looking at the history of political thought, we often neglect Talking and thinking about what exactly is it that we're doing. You know, we get this text and in Machiavelli's case we've got the prints, right? Or the discourses. And then we do a process and at the end of that process we produce a secondary text. What is that process? Because if you remember my metaphor of the many Machiavellis, this big sprawling mansion and grounds filled with this bewildering plethora of eclectic characters. The reason there's so many, I think, is just radically different methods that people have applied to these texts, some of which are defensible and some of which aren't. And what I like about Skinner is he's very clear, this is what I'm doing to the text in order to get this result. So let's start with method first of all. And I'm not going to go on about this, but I do do think it's interesting, important. And the first thing that Skinner says, and this seems common sense, is he says the first thing you've got to do when you get this text is you've got to understand the context in which he was written. Even if, as Skinner is doing, or as I interpret him to be doing, he's using these ideas for a modern purpose, or he's proffering them as potentially useful to a modern audience, he still says you've got to understand the context in which these things are written. So with respect to Machiavelli, he writes, and this is just from his book titled Machiavelli, he writes, quote, in order to understand Machiavelli's doctrines, we need to begin by recovering the problems he evidently saw himself confronting in the prince, the discourses, and his other works of political thought. To attain this perspective, we need in turn to reconstruct the context in which these works were originally composed, the intellectual context of classical and Renaissance philosophy, as well as the political context of the Italian city-state life at the start of the 16th century, end quote. So this seems, to me at least, to be an eminently sensible way of proceeding. And it's in contrast to a method of approaching political thought that assumes that what political writers are doing is they're answering quote-unquote timeless questions that all of the political theorists in the canon, from Plato to Aristotle, skipping a thousand years as our canon does, through to the Renaissance, through to the early modern period, through to more modern thinkers, they're all sort of addressing the same set of underlying concerns. You know, what is justice? What is fairness? And so on. And Skinner says obviously that's not the case. They're addressing concerns that are located within particular political and cultural frameworks. Now, some people might push back on that and say, actually, in Machiavelli's case, he, he clearly actually thought he was doing the latter. Machiavelli thought he was answering timeless questions. He says very explicitly in both the prints and the discourses, he says... You'll actually find that the same solutions which the Romans put in place are operative today, and that by reading history, we can sort of access, I don't know if you would have called them timeless truths, but sort of underlying and unchanging axioms and constraints on human conduct. That might be true, but it's also true that the way in which Machiavelli went about expressing and understanding and arguing for what he saw as these timeless truths was constrained by his culture. It was constrained by the language and the vocabulary, both the literal vocabulary and also the set of moral concepts that were operative in that age that he had access to. He could only express it in the language of his time. I'll put this thought a different way. Michael Friedman, in describing how we build a model of a particular political ideology, and I am going to, by the way, treat the sort of class conflict republicanism that I'm going to build up out of Machiavelli as an ideology. That's sort of debatable whether you can assume Machiavelli to have a political ideology or if political ideologies develop later in the game, in like the 1800s. I'll come back to that point. But I'm going to treat Machiavelli as a political ideologue. And I don't mean that as a negative per se, but I'm going to treat him as expressing a political ideology. Michael Frieden tells us that you've got to understand that ideologies are bound by two sets of constraints, which are loose and can be bent, but can't be fundamentally broken. There's logical constraints, and cultural constraints. So logical constraints goes to this idea of being involved in philosophic reasoning that'll stand up throughout the ages and answering these timeless questions and really producing something that, like Hobbes imagined, he was doing, right? Which really is sort of the algebra of morality, which really does just stand up. Now, Frieden's view is it's not that serious. That There's a loose logical constraint to all of it. The ideas have to be roughly coherent with each other in an ideology, but they don't have to be totally coherent. There will be places where there seems to be some contradictions, and that's true of Machiavelli. I think there is a harmony between his more authoritarian side and his more um, liberty-loving side, which I'll hope to reach in this but it's not perfectly coherent all the way through. It's loosely coherent. Now, in the same way that that's logical constraints, there's also cultural constraints. So ideas have to be, even if they're challenging the culture, even if they're saying, and Machiavelli will, by the way, even if they're saying something that's Morally subversive, that's going to be shocking to people. And Machiavelli did. He's a very wily thinker, and he says stuff sometimes. You get the feeling he says stuff sometimes to get it to shock, or sometimes even to get a laugh. But even in that case, and Machiavelli exemplifies that tendency as well as anyone in the canon, even in that case, you still have to present the ideas in a way that's intelligible to the audience you still have to express them through concepts and categories that the audience will understand. So to summarise then, Quentin Skinner says, all, not all, but many of these people who look at the history of political thought imagine that what they're looking at is authors answering timeless questions. You know, producing these sort of logical, philosophical accounts to answer them. And in fact, your first step is you want to look at the culture and the history surrounding that author, the questions that that author thought themselves to be answering. I offered a slightly different language on that, which I think speaks to the same thing of saying that political ideologies or political belief systems need to be understood as evolving within logical constraints, loose logical constraints, but nonetheless there, and a loose set of cultural constraints. And that's your first sort of interpretive step. So what is the context? Let's jump in and do a really quick overview of some history, because this history is really fun. Like, even if you're not into history, if you don't find Florence in like the 1490s turn of the 1500s, if you don't find this period interesting, then you, I don't know, like I I hate to be dismissive, but you just don't have a soul. To put it in context, you have this tiny city-state republic that Machiavelli is going to be a actually non-trivial political operative within that is going to have figures like Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Um, You're going to have this incredible figure of Cesare Borgia, which many people imagine Mm. to um, be the model for the prince. You're going to have the Medici with all of the the, um, symbolism and all of the sort of legends that go along with that. And all of these people are going to be together at the same place and they all know each other. Like, Leonardo da Vinci was sort of like a a friend, might be the wrong word, but a close confidant and co-worker of Machiavelli. He knew Cesare Borgia on a reasonably personal basis. He knew the Medici. It really is this sort of incredible moment of history. I was talking with a historian once, and he sort of talked about his areas of history. He said, well, what are your favourite bits of history? I said, well, you know, I like... Um, republican rome i like athens i like the persian empire i like I, I love florence in this moment that i've been describing and this guy just laughed at me and he said so you just like the big fancy bits where everything's going on He <laughs> in, in a sort of tone of scorn if you know you're you're just really just eating the cherry off the top of the cake and then throwing the cake in the bin and yeah i'll i'll, I'll own that these but this this Is one of the big fancy bits where everything's going on. So, as a tiny bit of context, Italian cities from maybe the closing of the 12th through to the 15th century um, are going to begin to establish a distinctive system of republican government. So, democratic might be a bit too far of a stretch. Certainly, you had nothing even remotely looking like a universal franchise, but nonetheless some participation in political decision-making from some sections of the population that certainly most of the time in that period of history would have been nowhere near political decision-making. So, you know, what would happen is you get chief magistrates called Podesta who were elected for periods of 6 to 12 months, and you'd get executive councils. And these councils were sort of in theory, maybe not in practice, regarded as having the same status of the people who elected them. They were public servants. Now, this process is sort of parallel with a process of recovery of many of the works. I mean, this is what the Renaissance is known for, right? A recovery of many of the works of antiquity, particularly of Aristotle, which comes in the later part of the thirteenth century, and that gives a theoretical articulation of the underlying principles that makes these sort new sorts of um, political organisation possible. And then, of course, you also get the Roman authors and historians, chief amongst them Cicero, um, but also a figure I'm going to come back to later in this series, Sallust. Um, that become part of the intellectual life of the elite. And I say of the elite, we do have to be careful, and even Quentin Skinner says this, we have to be careful in acknowledging that the Renaissance was something that happened to the tiniest minority of people. And as impressive and interesting and engaging as this story is, We shouldn't pretend this was some sort of mass enfranchisement or anything like that. But with that in mind, when we look at the Italy of Machiavelli's birth, we're actually looking at a world in which what you might call the modern nation-state, that's not developed, but you're beginning to get the underpinnings, and in many parts of Europe, things that will become nation states are emerging in embryonic form. Um, you, you are getting a kingdom of France, a kingdom of Naples. Um, England is um, becoming, is entering a long period of political stability under the Tudors. And you're also getting, again, not in a comprehensive way, but the beginnings, the embryonic forms of what will become the European empires. The age of exploration is just starting. But Italy seems to be left out from all of that. Italy is a patchwork of different states and perhaps analogous to ancient Greece These states are sometimes at peace, sometimes at war, and to the modern or outsider eye, they have a bewildering variety of different constitutional forms. So some are ruled by strongmen, some are ruled, like I say, in this sort of more republican form of governance that's popular, some are ruled, the papal states, directly By the Catholic Church. And by the way, at this point, there is only the Catholic Church. The Protestants haven't invented themselves yet, although there is the stirrings of discontent, as we'll see. And in Florence, as Machiavelli comes of age, there's kind of this compromise that has been formed where you have a theoretically republican government that, sort of, in practice, is managed and maintained by a particular family, the Medici. The Medici are very, very wealthy, they're bankers, and they sort of run the city in almost like, with all of this, by the way, there's going to be some historian who's going to disagree with me, so just take that as a pinch of salt, but they sort of run the city in almost like a godfather style of governance, and I mean that sort of in the good way, in a way that the godfather provides a sort of sympathetic look at that structure of like a hierarchy of clientels. In other words, people like and admire the Medici in many ways. They give a lot of their money away. They're great patrons of the arts. A lot of the wonderful works that that we know from the Renaissance come from Medici patronage. And there's sort of this system where, you know, people are close to them. If you think of that scene at the beginning of The Godfather, people bring them gifts and honour them, and they go to them in their time of need. And it's a very sort of personal form of political authoritarianism. Now, this is a family that's had its struggles, it's had certain people within it assassinated, and there's been like a whole godfather drama leading up to this point. And in 1492, which is a year that's significant for other reasons, right, but in 1492, the great patriarch of the family, Lorenzo di Medici, is dying. And this has been a man who has been as successful as anyone in Italy has been within his lifetime. He has really managed the city through crisis, through turmults. He's formed and broken alliances with popes. And in spite of that, when he dies, he's very anxious and very concerned and very, very afraid. And he's afraid because his wealth, his opulence has been condemned by a popular preacher called Savannarola. This is a, a Protestant before they were Protestants, we might say. And I can't help myself, historians are going to hate this, but I, I can't help making a Game of Thrones reference here to that cult that imprisons Cersei. He wore very simple garb, just this tunic, habit, sorry. He would self-flagellate, so he was obsessed with sin and purity, and when he felt he wasn't being pure enough, he would, he would beat his own back with a whip as penance. That sort of dude, right? Very morally pure, very concerned with... No more prostitution, no more homosexuality, both of which, by the way, were things that the Medici were completely fine with, both as a matter of their personal morality and their governance of the city. Uh, very, very antagonistic towards wealth, towards usury, the borrowing of money and the charging of interest. This was a sin to the extravagance of the artwork, to the sinfulness of these depictions of um Naked male bodies from um, from antiquity that were being revived in the Renaissance, and he'd been condemning Lorenzo de Medici for his you know for years now, and on his deathbed, this was really getting to Lorenzo, and he says, you know, before I die, I have to confess my sins and I have to get this off my chest, and he says, you know what, you know what'll reassure me. I'm going to call for Savannah Roller. I'm going to confess my sins, and you know, and then if he pardons me, I can go to my deathbed with ease. Because if my harshest critic will pardon me, I'll be fine. Now, there's different versions of what happened next, but the one I really like is Savonarola is called into this huge Medici palace. And if you've been there, there's actually these huge frescoes of scenes from the Bible with the Medici's faces painted into the key actors. And you can imagine all too clearly what Savonarola might have thought of that. And he doesn't forgive him. He hears his confession and he says, and for those sins, you will go to hell. Which is not at all <laughs> not at all what uh I think Lorenzo was thinking or hoping for, and Savonarola leads, and Lorenzo just loses his mind and dies with his last breath, being these whimpers, terrified of hellfire, and so passes Lorenzo de Medici, the most powerful man in the city, one of the most powerful men in Italy, known to his contemporaries as the Magnificent. Now, there's a brief period in which the Medici will attempt to maintain their hold on the city, but that's eventually done away with, and because of a mishandling of foreign policy, essentially, the city isn't happy with how they managed an army the french army coming through their territory the medici are cast out and they say we're gonna have a republic and this is i could do a whole series on this and you can tell i'm getting into my history there's this weird thing that happens where there is a republic but it com- becomes defined by and led by savannah roller and you get you know, obviously, prostitutes are beaten, homosexuals are killed, and this this wonderful artwork that's been created. You get this amazing event called the Bonfire of the Vanities. Have you heard that phrase before? Right, the Bonfire of the Vanities, where he says, "Show penitence, show penitence, show your humility before God, and let us do away with all this this decadence and sin and corruption," and. Michelangelo, in a fit of either fear or religious frenzy, it's hard to tell with him. Ma- Michelangelo, by the way, was um, someone who was gay, and unlike Leonardo da Vinci, who was very openly and flamboyantly gay in his youth, Michelangelo was always racked with guilt about how he felt about these male nudes, that he was producing an inner fit of some fear or religious fervor somewhere in between, burns his own masterpieces as a sign of penitence, to appease maybe this figure of Savonarola. And this is going to continue for a few years. But as that happens, we get a new pope, almost at the same time as Lorenzo de' Medici, the sort of... this great Medici patriarch dies the pope dies and it's almost like and again historians will hate this but this is kind of like a Donald Trump moment where this outsider who's a joke and coarse and crass and very egotistical and power hungry comes out of nowhere and claims the papacy and again similar to Donald Trump with apparently a lot of interference and bribes and money. And his name is Rodrigo de Borgia, the Borgias being another of these rich, influential, powerful families, sort of almost like mafia-style clans um, in Italy at the time. And he will become Pope Alexander VI, reviled by the people who came after him as one of the most corrupt and deprived popes Ever, Although it must be pointed out that many modern historians feel that this was unfair or a work of propaganda against him or so on. Um, And he and some of the Medici popes that come after him will come to represent to many people, and to Savonarola in particular, the corruption and the decadence into which the Catholic Church has fallen. And there's nothing... And there's nothing to oppose that to. There's there's no Protestants yet. But Savonarola nonetheless opposes it and preaches against it and rails against it. And like I say, he has the city of Florence. It's almost like his kingdom now. And Pope Alexander goes after him and launches inquiries of him, calls him a heretic, has him excommunicated, which means he can't preach, he can't do sermons, it doesn't matter, he has his followers do it. And there's, I can't do the whole story here, but these endless legal wranglings back and forth and eventually he gets overthrown and arrested and through this whole, like, Game of Thrones-style saga, eventually condemned to death, until in, finally, in 1498, he's led into the main square of Florence, he's hung, and his body is burnt. So passes, and so much for Savonarola. And that immediately does tell you something that we're going to revisit with Machiavelli, that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You have these incredible figures of history. Lorenzo di Medici, the Magnificent. You have Savonarola. And then, oh, too bad. You have to hold your state. You have to maintain your status, as Machiavelli tells us in The Prince. And when he dies, then... Instead of reverting to Medici rule or whatever, these republican institutions that have sort of been there under Savonarola, although always sort of tempered by his puritanical, although Puritans didn't really exist back then, but puritanical influence, proto-puritanical influence really begin to reassert themselves. And Florence just suddenly takes off. And you're going to get this amazing story, which I might be able to revisit, but I've already gone on far too long with this historical context. It's just so good, isn't it? Isn't this historical context just so good? This is the best historical context of any figure in the canon, except maybe like Plato or something. But the difference is Plato was a sort of cynical, outside aristocratic observer. Machiavelli was in it. Because when this new Florentine Republic really comes into its own, he's going to gain a non-trivial position within it. He's going to have significant powers and a staff, and he's going to be the person who goes out and negotiates with all of these Different rulers around Florence, many of whom there'll be this figure who, um, one of the bastard sons of this new pope, this Borgia pope, Cesare Borgia, who's going to take over a lot of central Italy and consolidate it into his rule. And Machiavelli has to play him against other people and play them all off against each other to sort of keep Florence safe. Um, Florence will expand its dominions. Machiavelli personally will lead the armies that recapture Pisa. It's this incredible story. And um, perhaps sometime I could do just a narrative history of it. But that is the context of this man. And it will eventually end. And Medici rule will be in, reinstated. And Machiavelli will... Well, he'll be arrested and tortured as someone supposedly against the Medici, but he'll get free eventually. And he'll go in as an older man, although not that old, maybe like 60, he'll go into exile. And then he'll write his works that we know him for. Now, that's getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but that is the context of this. And, like I said earlier it 's some pretty good context, right so what do we what do we draw from all of that When I did my libertarian series, I talked about the factors that any thinker writing in the eighteen hundreds had to contend with any thinker in the eighteen hundreds has to contend with urbanization and the industrial revolution. They have to it 's what 's going on, and even when they 're not talking about it they 're talking about it. So, what is a writer in the Italian? Renaissance, talking about now that I've given you all of that 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 context. Well, there's one big one that's going to be uh, huge for this story of um, reconstructing Machiavelli as a republican thinker, and that's obviously the contrast between one man princely rule or autocratic rule or republican rule. That's obviously going to be a huge concern for people who live. In this patchwork of states, uh, some of which have ruling clans uh, like the Medici, some of which have outright tyrants, but some of which have this comparatively modern form of government justified by these ancient texts of, of like, republics. So that's going to be huge. There's there's also two other notes which I want to draw on, which is the first is the the formation of the modern nation-state, and together with that, the beginnings of thinking about colonialism and a sort of expansionist foreign policy. And the other is religion. You are seeing the beginnings, the latent forms of what will become Protestantism. But let's stay with princes versus republics, because this is the sort of one of the sort of central conflicts with which all the thinkers of the age were concerned with and with which machiavelli will be interpreted and if you imagine again my metaphor of the big room of the many machiavellis you can sort of cut them down here's another way of dividing up that space is those machiavellis who were there for the princes, who were advisors to princes, who were arguing for princely rule and those Machiavellis who were arguing for republics, the republican Machiavellis. And this is made the more difficult by the fact that there's two different books that people go to for Machiavelli. There's The Prince and The Discourses. The Prince is a mirror for princes. This is a genre of writing that exists and has existed for a while. In this world, where essentially people write down bits of advice, you know, how to govern well and wisely and justly. And Machiavelli writes one that is a little bit morally subversive, to put it mildly. The other is the Discourses, where he um, looks at the works of Titus Livy, this Roman author, and really presents a quite full-throated defence of republicanism as a system of government. And Machiavelli scholars have always sort of wrangled over which is the real Machiavelli, whatever that might mean. Is there a reconciliation between those two works? Or are they they just two different sides to him? Which Which one should we start with? And that also goes down the line of, like, do we view Machiavelli positively or not? So I'll just do a couple of quotes on this. But many of the thinkers who sort of don't like Machiavelli don't like him because they they go the first route. They say this is the Machiavelli of the princes. This is the Machiavelli, the, the, the Henry Kissinger Machiavelli, right? The Machiavelli of Mussolini, actually, who said... Mussolini, who's such a dick, right? Who said Machiavelli is my favourite philosopher, but he wasn't ruthless enough. That's end quote. That's an actual Mussolini quote. And for many sort of of the big thinkers in the history of political thought, this is how they've taken Machiavelli. So Leo Strauss, this is um. And by the way, whenever I quote Strauss, everyone says, "Well, that's not what Strauss really meant." Well, then strauss should have said that right but i can only read you what he said and this is what he said about machiavelli quote we shall not shock anyone we shall merely expose ourselves to good-natured or at any rate harmless ridicule if we profess ourselves inclined to the old-fashioned and simple opinion according to which machiavelli was a teacher of E. indeed what other description Would be fit for a man who teaches lessons like these. Princes ought to exterminate the family of rulers whose territory they wish to possess. Princes ought to murder their opponents rather than confiscate those property. Since those who've been robbed, but not those who are dead, can think of revenge. Men forget the murder of their fathers sooner than the loss of their patrimony. It is true that only evil men will stoop to teach maxims of public and private gangsterism. We are forced to say that Machiavelli was an evil man. Machiavelli was indeed not the first man to express opinions like those mentioned. But Machiavelli is the only philosopher who has lent the weight of his name to any way of political thinking and political acting which is as old as society itself. So much so that his name is commonly used for designating such a way. He is notorious as the classic of the evil way of political thinking and political acting. Machiavelli proclaims openly and triumphantly a corrupting doctrine, which ancient writers had thought covertly with all signs of repugnance. So that's the read of the Machiavelli of Princes that we get from Strauss, right? There's sort of an allied one with that that says, yes, this was like an evil dude, but actually in some ways this analysis of power was actually in a weird way a sort of forerunner of empiricism. He's sort of taking morality out of politics. So this is um, Gauss again from his introduction to the prince. He says, quote, Machiavelli would have been right to conclude that the core of the state was power. In regarding the state as a dynamic, expansive force, Machiavelli was closer to reality and realpolitik than much nineteenth and earliest twentieth century thinking in this respect is modern. So that's the idea that in many ways. Machiavelli is, is a modern thinker. I don't agree with that, and later in the series I'll explain why, but that's just a sampling of some of the ways that people have interpreted this legacy. But let's turn away from that, and let's turn back to the Republican Machiavelli. And there's a lot of people who've argued from it from that point of view as well. So Kosta Kavosky, in his book entitled Machiavelli, writes... Quote, without any attempt to negate the considerable advice Machiavelli gives to princes and all others who strive towards the heights of power, it is intended for this book to demonstrate that Machiavelli possessed a firm knowledge of how a state is to be founded or or ruined or corrupted or improved, and to demonstrate that he was a supporter of freedom, republicanism and the rule of law and that he had been much less a teacher of evil and much more a teacher of virtue, of conceived as a creative force in history, End quote. And that ambivalence is quite common, actually. So there's a number that fall between, and to sort of try and play it on both sides, and do both the princely Machiavelli and the republican Machiavelli. So David held in Models of Democracy, which I think anyone doing an undergrad politics, political theory course will read, says, quote, his judgment moved uneasily between admiration of a free, self-governing people and admiration of a powerful leader able to create and defend the law. End quote. His judgment moved uneasily. Now, I'm going to say that I think that's wrong. And I'm going to start with Skinner and build out this Republican Machiavelli because I'm making the methodological assumption that what I'm building is an ideology. So my first step in looking at these texts is to ask what was the context in which they were written and what are the cultural constraints that were operative? And we've just looked at a lot of the context, but particularly the context is this uneasy struggle between one-man princely rule and republican rule. The other constraint I'm putting on is a loose logical consistency. I'm looking at these texts, hoping and expecting to find a view that will contain its contradictions, but in terms of its foundational aspirational values, it has a broad coherence. And that, surely, has to be our next methodological step. What are the ultimate values that this work is appealing to? We have, kind of, at the moment, a mess of seemingly conflicting statements. But what are the ultimate, what Michael Frieden would call core concepts? What are the central ideas around which this particular ideology, system of belief, revolves. So in my ideology series, I talked about how the absolute foundational values of libertarianism tend to be individualism, freedom, and property rights. What are we really digging at here? Well, Skinner places Machiavelli within the tradition of defending republican liberty, which I think is definitely correct. And when looking at this, Skinner always starts with, and he starts with this with Machiavelli. But a lot of writers, Skinner always draws together different thinkers. Oh, so I recommend if you want a quick overview of sort of Skinner and his style and his sort of particular argument, um, you could look at quote um, a third concept of liberty from the proceedings of the British Academy in two thousand and two, when he says that these Republican thinkers, quote, owe their phraseology entirely to the analysis of freedom and slavery found at the outset of the digest of Roman law, which was um, a text that had become very influential for these Renaissance thinkers, particularly Republican thinkers. And the passage cited defines slavery as, quote, being subject to the dominion of someone else. So this establishes, I think the central conceptual relation of Skinner's Republican ideology, that of freedom of non-domination, by maintaining its converse that slavery, non-freedom, is domination. To be a slave is to be subject to domination. Hence, to be free is to be not dominated. From this, um, this is an argument in a lot of his works Um, Skinner will go on to argue that accepting this definition led the theorists to value individual self-rule. No one is your master, no one can have absolute dominion over you, which in turn led them to believe that the political system under which you live has to be participatory in order for you to be free. So the argument would be this. To be free, you must be non-dominated, if you have someone who can exercise absolute power over you, that is a system of domination, and hence you are not free. Hence, and to bring it into the context of the Italian city-states, people living under princely rule are not free, and people living under republican rule are free. And this is that is sort of the Skinnerite argument in a nutshell. Now, that would, to my mind, suggest itself of a number of applications in the modern world. Skinner tends not to do that, although if you have a look at another Republican theorist and friend of the podcast, Philip Pettit, um, he does bring that into a number of sort of left-wing social democratic Positions you can check out on that front, um, applying this model of non-domination to the modern world, um, his book, Just Freedom, A Moral Compass for a Complex World. It's a good read. It's quite short. It's quite easy. Um, you can also check out his first episode, Neo-Republicanism, with this podcast. But that's getting ahead of ourselves to applying it. Um, is this particular conception right for Machiavelli. Well, if you bring it to the texts, you can definitely find evidence for it. So let's do a quote from Machiavelli. This is from the Discourses. Quote, it is easy to understand how this love of liberty or freedom arises among nations, for we know by experience that states have never singularly increased, either as to dominion or wealth where they have lived under a free government, and truly it is strange to think what a pitch of greatness Athens came during the hundred years after she had freed herself from despotism, and far stranger to contemplate the marvellous growth which Rome made after freeing herself from her kings. The cause, however, is not far to seek, since it is the well-being not of individuals, but of the community which makes states great, and without question, this universal well-being is nowhere secured save in a republic. End quote. Okay, so that would seem to back out, back up this what Skinner's arguing, right? This um, ideological cluster with freedom and non-domination as its core concept, and we'll posit that as the beginning of our republican core which we're going to build up more in the next episode and so you can sort of see that right there's an opposition where one man rule be it um the tyrant of athens or be it the kings of rome is being described as unfree and the republics or democracies that arise afterwards are being described as free. And Machiavelli goes on to say that free states are the ones that do great things, that achieve great prosperity or great glory for themselves. That's a bit of a separate claim to what Skinner's arguing, but you can definitely see in that quote um, something that, that could definitely be used to evidence this Skinnerite Skinnerite, is that a word? But, but this um, Republican idea of liberty that Skinner is arguing for. And by the way, some people are going to say, oh, you know, you're, you're criticizing Skinner and saying he's doing ideology and not history. I just want to note this quickly. I, I absolutely see um, Philip Pettit and Skinner and these sort of neo-Republicans as being involved in an ideological project. But to my mind that's not an insult an ideology is a cluster of understandings of particular terms that are in competition with other understandings so we talked about a libertarian or even a progressive liberal conception of freedom at the beginning of this episode and i said you know it feels like there's room for something else and I think definitely Quentin Skinner and Philip Pettit and many others that you could talk about in that space, they're not the only two, have had that thought and they've gone back to history and they've found this other idea of freedom. Freedom as not being dominated as opposed to freedom as not being constrained. And they've said this, this seems to to speak to me more and we offer it As an example. So to my mind, that is an ideological project. So to quote um, Michael Friedan, whose model of ideology I'm going to be using to inform this work, quote, an ideology will link together a particular conception of human nature, a particular conception of the social structure, of liberty, of justice. This is what liberty means, and this is what justice means it asserts. So again, I would view a sort of neo-Republican framework, whether it's being derived from history or not, as an ideological form that's in competition with other ideological forms. I mean, literally, as Frieden says, it is asserting this is what freedom Means. And that's the other element, of course, to ideologies, and the really foundational thing is they're in competition with each other. They're competitions over the control of language. So, again, to quote from Frieden. Um, This is all in ideologies and political theory, which I draw from a lot in all of my solo episodes. He says, quote, ideologies are hence struggles over the socially legitimated meanings of political concepts and sustaining relationships they form in an attempt to establish a correct usage end quote a correct usage that's again a theme i've referred to a time and time again and this goes to why we would look at history and why i'm going to quote a lot from machiavelli to you in these upcoming episodes is ideologies don't just come into the world and say this is a nice idea they have a bit more teeth to them than that to really gain traction they say this is right this is objectively true Libertarians do this all the time. You just need to understand the laws of economics, right? They haven't just said, you need to understand that this is my preferred variant on freedom. They've backed it up with a measure of objectivity. And to do that, as I discussed in that Libertarian series, they've evoked the armour of science, right? Right? So that's one reason that we might go back to history, we might go back to Machiavelli and the Italian Renaissance to look at what they thought about freedom, is to legitimate it. If we are going to create some animating, dynamic ideal of what we want in society as members of the left today, we need to give it this this credibility we need to be able to say this is the correct usage now one way of doing that is through science through claiming it's science in the the way that, like I say, libertarians will invoke the science of economics. Marxists will invoke the science of historical materialism. Early thinkers like Herbert Spencer will say the science of evolution somehow proves that my theory is true. But the other way you, you can legitimate it, and I think actually a more valid way, is through history to say this has a historical and legal and philosophical tradition behind it. Right? Remember I mentioned milkshakes at the beginning. The people who argue for free speech and whatever immediately immediately bring in that legal and philosophical and historical tradition to their arguments about free speech and civility and all that. right? It's there. It adds weight. And we are. Politics is about timelines. It's about drawing legitimacy from the past as well as projecting it into the future. So there's nothing, not only is there nothing wrong with, but to my mind, it's much more desirable to seek our legitimacy from the past as opposed to wearing this sort of nasty suit of cannibalized science around it. So I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I think drawing from a time when republic's democracies were sort of first sprouting up again after a thousand years being dormant and what did those people think freedom was i think that's that's not only an okay thing to do i think that's a terrific thing to do it's not the only thing that you can do with those texts there's many other projects you can do with them but but This looking to the texts to legitimate our ideology is, I think, a really key function of what we do with them. More than that, we're not just going to the texts, and this is going to bring me into where I'm going to start to disagree with Skinner. We're not just looking at the texts to validate what we already believe. We're looking to them for sources of imagination. Dale Martin said this in my interview with him about... Um, the New Testament. He said it's not a guide. It's not you read the Bible and you do what it says. In the same way, I don't think, you know, we read Machiavelli and we think, ah, you know, now I will establish a principate of the Romana region of Italy. No, of course not, right? We're not literally applying every step from it. We're looking for it as a source of inspiration for how we conceptually see the world. And one thing Republican writers like Skinner, like Pettit, claim to have found is a new way of seeing liberty, such that, as I talked about in the beginning, some of the gaps, some of the holes in our normative understanding of the world can begin to be filled And there are holes, right? Like I said at the beginning, there's holes, I think, in this discourse between liberals and radicals or centrists and social democrats. There's holes in a society that tells itself that it's free but doesn't feel free. And so do I think this straightforward interpretation of republican theory fills those holes it does in some ways and it doesn't in others and before i get to that i want to begin to pick this apart a little and use these historical texts use machiavelli i'm going to use primarily the discourses also the prince and i'm going to look at the florentine histories very underrated but i'm going to bring in at least one specific passage from that to create something that While I would say falls within the Republican family, is a distinct variant from that that has been offered to us by Republican theorists. So just to really nail this in, I would say that what Quentin Skinner is bringing us is an ideological project that is a Republican ideology that has as its core this concepts of freedom and non-domination and then a range of closely connected adjacent concepts that flesh these concepts out a bit more and give us a sense of what they mean. So these adjacent concepts, I would say, are individual self-rule, a participatory political arena, national self-determination, and the autarky or self-rule of the political unit. So those are a set of concepts that sort of flesh out what freedom as non-domination means to be free to be non-dominated means the individual can rule themselves it means that the individual can participate in in decision making that the, the overall state is free and not subject to the dominion the the domination of of anyone else and that's what he essentially reads machiavelli as saying now now, don't get me wrong that is far from being completely wrong but you can also find stuff that seems to cut against it so the dichotomy between one-man rule and freedom that does occur a number of times within Machiavelli however it's not it's questionable if that should be the only basis of our understanding Machiavelli is not consistent in this respect he equates liberty sometimes with democracy but he also equates it sometimes with aristocracy or even the common good and there's a few weird bits where he talks about freedom existing under one-man rule so this is again from the discourses quote for romulus and the other kings made many good laws and such were not incompatible with freedom because they sought to found a kingdom and not a commonwealth but when the city became free, many things were found wanting, which in the interests of liberty it was necessary to supply, since the kings had not supplied them. End quote. So, wait, what's going on there? For Romulus and the other kings made many good laws, and as such were not incompatible with freedom. So, the early kings of Rome were not incompatible with freedom. However, ultimately, the demands of freedom made necessary that the kings had to go huh so that seems weird right turning more broadly If we follow through, what sort of would be the implications, right? What would someone concerned with primarily freedom as non-domination, fleshed out as individual self-rule, participatory politics, the sort of self-rule of the political unit, what would they be concerned with? Well, they would be concerned with promoting republics, which Machiavelli definitely is. They'd be concerned with securing suffrage and democratic elections, which again, to a degree, Machiavelli is. But Machiavelli's concerned with a whole bunch of stuff, and really concerned, to the point where he will make himself really unpopular, saying it with a whole load of stuff that has nothing whatsoever to do with it. Why is Machiavelli so opposed, through all of his writings, to the use of mercenary forces? Why does he go on and on and on, ad nauseam that you should not hire mercenaries. Mercenaries had a mixed record in Machiavelli's time. They did no good for Florence, but Florence was also conquered by mercenaries. The Medici reinstated their rule through a mercenary army, but no, against mercenaries. Why is Machiavelli so determined that a good prince or a good republic, either or, should have its army mainly be infantry and not cavalry. What does that have to do with anything? What does it have to do with anything that Machiavelli is very, very, very concerned to defend riots that happened in the early Roman Republic? Again, what's that to do with anything? Now, what I'm going to argue in the next part is if we take those specific proposals that... Machiavelli is, is sort of advocating for. Which, again, just don't seem relevant. So what if someone in the 18... not 18, in the, you know, in the Renaissance thought this about infantry or cavalry? Another one would be the use of fortresses. Machiavelli is very adamant that a good prince, or republic for that matter, should not be reliant on the use of fortresses. I'm going to argue... That there's actually a coherence to all of this. And that once you understand the reciprocal relationship between these core values commitments, these core concepts, which is indeed freedom. Freedom is indeed a core concept for Machiavelli. But once you understand how that's in a relationship with all of the specific things he's arguing for, you'll end up with a new definition of freedom. One that is recognisably Republican. It definitely references non-domination, but that interprets and processes that non-domination in a very different way. That specifically, to get to the heart of Machiavelli, you want to understand that for him, non-domination is class-based and freedom is an assertion of class pride. And once you get that and the relationship with some of these sort of linked adjacent concepts... Everything starts to make sense, and you can attain not a perfect, but a rough, logical coherence between the two Machiavellis that we've looked at in this episode, the princely and the republican, as well as make sense of why he's so adamant about some of the other stuff that he bangs on about, because... Lest we forget the Prince is a very short book. The Bid in the Discourse is about Republic's first half of first book. He bangs on about this other stuff for another three books. Why? That's the question I'm going to answer in the next episode. And in doing so, I think we'll produce something that is useful, that is genuinely relevant and practical. In answering some of the questions I posed at the outset. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Next week we'll continue the story. Um, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so at Patreon, patreon.com/stroke political podcast. This podcast goes out for free and ad-free, and if you'd like to have it continue that way, uh, please do consider supporting. You can also support the show just by sharing episodes. You'll hear the storm around me. If you can hear that rain and thunder. Just got a tornado warning. Don't know why I'm telling you this. Anyway, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next week for part two.